medicine is about a personality fit. Um, uh, and also more importantly, and I think maybe some of your previous guests have mentioned this, you really have to like the most mundane thing that that specialty does, not just the exciting thing. And that's what ultimately tipped me to GI versus, versus rheumatology is that I didn't love, um, you know, fibromyalgia, osteoarthritis, some of the bread and butter osteoporosis. I really loved, you know, really narrow aspects of rheumatology, kind of the, you know, when you hear hoofbeats, think zebra. I, I love that. I love like a vasculitis and I think that creative mindset, but I really enjoy dealing with patients with inflammatory bowel disease or irritable bowel syndrome um, that were more GI bleeds that were more bread and butter GI, not just the not just the, the zebras, but but the horses as well. And I think that led me to um, more of a cognitive decision, a real life decision of what specialty to, to kind of target. Transplants? Dr. Kassel, how do you feel about them? They're the best thing. Um, Jeff, great to, great to talk to you, but uh, microbiome transplant in particular, uh, I would say all transplants aren't created equal. I'm sure we'll talk more about that. We'll definitely talk more about that. And you talked about microbiome transplants, so you took the, you took the punchline of my joke, but uh, welcome to How It's Med, the podcast where we absolutely jar our audience with poorly scripted introductions and where we also happen to chat with the greats shaping the future of healthcare and health tech. My name is Jeff, uh, and sometimes alongside my co-host, Abdo, uh, we chat with people who, sh again, shape the future of healthcare and health technology. Um, our guest today is Dr. Zane Kassam. He's the unparalleled co-founder um, of the unicorn company, Finch Therapeutics Group. Zane, how are you doing today? Really well, Jeff. Thanks for, thanks for having me and excited to uh, unpack a conversation about entrepreneurship, uh, about medicine, and uh, the story that connects them in between. Yeah, I, I mean... I think what I want to do first is uh, unpack that 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 thing about microbiota transplants. W what do you actually mean by that, Zane? Sure. Yeah. So uh, it turns out there are trillions of bugs on and in us, and particularly in our colon and our and our intestine, and uh, they've evolved with us. They're like part of humans. Uh, effectively, they you get them when you're born into this world, and they stay with you until you die. And they turns out they play a phenomenally important. Uh, role in health and disease that we've just really just started to uncover. Um, they're basically the, a missing organ, a virtual organ that we've just discovered. And um, uh, what happens is when they're, when that's disturbed, um, there ends up being health consequences. Uh, and actually what a microbiota transplant is, is the transfer of those healthy microbes from a healthy individual into an individual that's in a disease state uh, with the hope of ameliorating that clinical condition and restoring the microbiome. All right. And the, the most common circumstance in which I've heard of the microbiome is the gut. So is that where you started or are there, are there other, I guess, microbiomes that you've targeted as well? So my, my focus as a gastroenterologist has always been in the gut microbiome, but there are others that are focused in other areas of the human body and, and transplant. Probably the one that's probably it's just starting to emerge is vaginal microbiome transplants for um, conditions related to women's health, uh, which is fascinating as well. And I think emerging that's also skin microbiome administration is starting to evolve as well. And so that's kind of also another hot area in microbiome sciences. And so I think the pioneers, the start of this field have been in the gut because that's where that's uh, that's where the bulk of the microbiome is. And um, but I think now folks are starting to understand the the impact of 
uh, not just the GI microbiome impacting other areas of the body, which we could talk more about everything from the brain to cancer um, and uh, immunology in general, but also starting to realize that there are microbes that, that sit on our skin or that are kind of in the, uh, you know, in the vaginal cavity that have a huge and, and meaningful impact in other areas of medicine. Uh, that, that, I mean, that explanation of the microbiome is far beyond anything that I've ever understood. So I think we went a little too in media res there in terms of the absolutely amazing work that you've done. So in order to give, I guess, the listeners a bit of context, let's flash back to 2004, this guy named Mark, maybe Zuckerberg had just founded this company where you can connect people online. I don't know what use that would be, but you were in med school at that point. How did you get there? Yeah, great question. So maybe I'll even zone back further. How did I find, how did I find my way into medical school? So, um, my parents are immigrants, um, you know, South Asian background, uh, uh, came, uh, you know, basically with the shirts on their backs to Canada under civil unrest in East Africa and, um, uh, really valued education as, as many communities do. Uh, and so it almost felt like I was destined to have a career in one of three things, doctor, lawyer, engineer, and someone was preordained. Um, and I was really bad at math. So, uh, can't, can't, can't do, be, can't be an engineer. Um, uh, and so I was between two fields that I was like kind of exploring a little bit, uh, uh, the legal profession and, and, and medicine. And I had a really uh, amazing mentor, um, in high school, believe it or not, who, um, who was a law professor who's, <laughs> uh, and I, and I had a chance to, to, you know, chat with her and I ended up because I thought I liked some of the legal aspects, uh, I ended up doing competitive debating, uh, and you know, she took, she took me under her wing a little bit. And I, you know, as I grew up in Ottawa, that's where the Supreme court is. And one of her colleagues was a Supreme court justice, uh, believe it or not. And, um, I ended up having dinner, <laughs> uh, with the Supreme court justice and, and, and my, you know, a mentor of mine and the, the, you know, she tried to kind of ask some questions and said, well, kind of boil it up and saying, well, you know, if you go down the legal pathway, if you go, you know, undergraduate in the arts kind of towards the legal pathway, um, it's really hard to get into the medical path. But if you go into the sciences, it's going to open up that medical path a little bit more, uh, especially because law is changing and you can always pivot the other way. So you're leveraging sciences and law at the time, IP, you know, DNA in the courtroom was much more, you know, novel. And so the lesson that I learned is about maintaining optionality, actually. Uh, so I kept that optionality uh, from, from, you know, both law and medicine a little bit longer. Um, and I had the privilege of having another mentor in the sciences, Karim Damji, who is a physician who kind of introduced me to the, an ophthalmologist actually, uh, introduced me to the, the, what medicine was. Cause you know, as, as someone that didn't have the family of physicians, um, I had a perception of what it was, but there's a mismatch. There's, you know, a lot of differences in what medicine actually is, right? What, what the perceptions are. And then also he introduced me to another mentor of mine when I was in high school, uh, Rashmi Kothari at the Ottawa. Um, research institute and end up doing as a high school student kind of in a lab, learning how to do, you know, benchtop research in NS effectively. Uh, and those, those kind of confluence of factors nudged me into a Bachelor of Health Sciences program at McMaster University, which had a focus, I would say, indirectly on medicine. I think most of my classmates ended up in, uh, in medical school. And, and I think that's kind of the, the journey that took me into medicine. Uh, a bit passive, but also pretty active. And I think shaped by mentors that end up in the journey along the way. Okay. So, I mean, it seems like you've had a, like, a, you actually took your time deciding, whereas I guess for, for me, it was purely just like just medicine. I, I remember like mm -hmm. for me, 
interviewing at like a school before and my mom telling me to tell them that I want to go into medicine. So we took very different paths, but how was your path through medical school overall? Because I didn't know what I wanted to do before. I didn't even know there was residency going to medical school. So I was shocked. How did you find your way to gastroenterology? Was it like a similar torturous path? Torturous or torturous? Yeah, great question. Windy path. It was windy, but maybe not as turbulent or as windy as other people's story. I've always loved diversity. Um, and uh, one of the things that um, I found really exciting was the ability in internal medicine to be able to be a, uh, a specialist amongst a wide variety of areas. And I really liked gastroenterology because it allowed you to pivot between not only using your hands, <laughs> but also using your mind. Uh, long-term relationships with patients with inflammatory bowel disease, shorter-term relationships with people that have GI bleeds, uh, elderly patients that have colon cancer, young patients that have, you know, in, you know, ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. Um, and I think that's probably the cognitive answer, but there's also like the soul answer. And the soul answer is, you know, my, um, my dad has ulcerative colitis, a, a type of inflammatory bowel disease. And uh, certainly during the medical school, right, that was a uh, we had some difficult moments from a medical perspective and thankfully he's much better now, but it's always been an inspiration of, uh, you know, family always shapes who you are directly or indirectly and, and personal health journeys have a massive impact on, on your trajectory. And so I think those were the like seeds of what inspired me to explore that. Um, I'll say that I explored a bunch of other fields within medicine that I was really excited about, um, within internal medicine. So rheumatology, I really enjoyed as well. Um, and, 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 and I focused some research on areas that crossed both rheumatology and GI. Uh, so I did like ankylosing spondylitis type related, related arthritis, for example. And, um, and that to me, uh, was very interesting <laughs> because it allowed me, allowed me to kind of play in multiple areas. And I try to give that advice, you know, I just talked about optionality, you know, if you're really interested in GI and really interested in cardiology, maybe you should do like work on antiplatelet agents and GI bleeds, right? Because it kind of crosses over both areas and it gives you, lets you have a taste across um, different types of mentors and, and, and how to fit, right? And a lot of medicine is about a personality fit. Um, uh, and also more importantly, and I think maybe some of your previous guests have mentioned this, you really have to like the most mundane thing that that specialty does not just the exciting thing. And that's what ultimately tipped me to GI versus, versus rheumatology is that I didn't love, um, you know, fibromyalgia, osteoarthritis, some of the bread and butter osteoporosis. I really loved, you know, really narrow aspects of rheumatology, kind of the, you know, when you hear hoofbeats think zebra, I, I love that. I love like a vasculitis and I think that creative mindset, but I really enjoy dealing with patients with inflammatory bowel disease or irritable bowel syndrome. Um, that were or GI bleeds that were more bread and butter GI, not just the, not just the, the zebras, but, but the horses as well. And I think that led me to, um, more of a cognitive decision, a real life decision of what specialty to, to kind of target. I mean, you, you mentioned that you had done some clinical research or some benchtop research before medical school, and you've mentioned research again, has research always been important to you and something that you enjoyed because I mean, it, with people that we've chatted with before, um, some of their responses as to why they went to medicine was specifically to avoid research. I think it's always been a blend. I've been a, always been a curious guy and, um, and to me to find answers to like difficult problems, uh, whether that problem lies in biology 
or whether it lies in a clinical puzzle, uh, to me are, are, you know, kind of two coins on uh, two, two sides of a coin. And I think they're quite synergistic. I was just talking to a colleague of mine about the importance of being able to be a polyglot and see across both those domains. I think that's where true innovation happens is when you're able to cross over and kind of uh, see the other world and then cross apply it. Um, and so I've always enjoyed both. I actually thought for a really long time, I would end up doing an MD PhD. Uh, I ended up doing, uh, taking another kind of career path, which we'll talk more about, I'm sure from a training perspective, but I've always enjoyed research. Um, and I've also loved the collaboration aspect of it. I think we get that in clinical medicine as well with multidisciplinary teams, of course, but there's something different about um, different labs working together to solve a problem, completely different mindsets with different tools, um, the writing collaboration process. Uh, I've always found that kind of completely fascinating. And I think the people I've looked up to the most been able to be transformative in multiple areas of their career at different times, perhaps, but um, not, maybe, not always at the exact same time, but transferring in multiple areas. And, and so research has always been kind of near and dear to me, um, but not necessarily maybe, I think the, I think it's important to know why people get turned off of research. And often it's because the incentives are set up in unusual ways. For example, being first author and last author and publisher parish. And I think for me, that's been um, something I've actively worked out of. And so uh, my, my publication track record is, is an industry actually. And I've, I've been very fortunate to work with amazing people and collaborators in publishing over 200 papers and abstracts, but not in an academic setting. And it didn't matter to me ever if I was a first author or last author or which journal didn't even really matter. As long as that information got out there and people can build off of it, that like collaboration, that sense of community was always the most important aspect of research. Fortunately, I think sometimes academia, academia has, it's, it's a right for disruption uh, with realigning what the, um, what the right incentives are to uh, measure success. And I get it, like publishing and each index and citations are really easy to measure, but are they necessarily the right, um, right KPIs, right? I, I'm not sure they are. And I was, literally, I gave a talk to CIHR and one of their, um, large grant, uh, kind of summits. And they asked me to come because it was an academic group had, with one, you know, significant research funding and a significant commitment of funds uh, for the microbiome. And they said, we love, we love kind of academics and, and you know, papers in nature and science and cell and doing a general message are great, but we really care about is seeing those ideas translate to impact Canadian lives. And you know, you've done that a little bit. Can you maybe help share your story and your lessons to some of the academics in the Canadian ecosystem to be able to maybe stretch their brain in different direction to potentially you know, think about um, transformational impact, kind of not just in an academic arena, but, um, but, but touching patient lives kind of more directly. And I think I've always been a bit of a, you know, pulling a word out of Bill Gates, an inpatient optimist. If I, if I don't think I can make an impact in five years with that research, that research is not for me. Doesn't mean it shouldn't be done. It's just not for me. Um, and so I think that's been, uh, you know, a North, a North star for me in terms of where, how I've moved with my research career. Mm -hmm. That that's fascinating in terms of the focus on trying to get research out into actually transformative, I guess, clinical applications that touch people's lives because. I feel the exact same way, but you went beyond a residency in gastroenterology and went to want to do an MPH. What, what was the story behind that? Why an MPH? Yeah, great. This is that, I mean, everything always starts with a patient. Uh, so I was in my training and I had this 82 year old patient. She was British. Uh, she told me she looked like the queen of England. 
I'm uncertain, but she was very convinced. Uh, she loved her grandkids. She loved gardening. Uh, she's this wonderful sweetheart of a woman. And I saw her, I think it was like two in the morning, my double-double at Tim Hortons in the emergency department. She had this terrible case of an infection called C. diff, which is like a antibiotic superbug. Uh, and she'd failed the most potent antibiotics in the world, multiple rounds, and she was still tied to a toilet. She was so fed up, she wanted to have her colon cut out. And um, at the time, we we did something kind of experimental uh, called a fecal transplant, as we, as we talked a little bit about. And uh, lo and behold, Jeff, like she was gardening two days later. And I'm like, wow, this is incredible. It was the closest wow. thing I had seen to a miracle in medicine. And so I was very curious about it. And, you know, step one for me is like, let's get that research out there. And so I worked with my mentors, you know, Paul Moyetti, Christine Lee, Richard Hunt, and many others to put together the largest case series of the time, publish that. Um, and, uh, and then we, uh, I did, I was very curious why everyone wasn't doing it. Right. And so get back into the literature and I did a systematic review and meta-analysis to aggregate all the data that's out there in the fields, um, and, and try to understand why people aren't doing it. And, you know, on the one hand I saw wonderful, like the efficacy rates were really high. The safety profile was wonderful. Um, but the catch was known they're all case reports and case series, you know, really poor clinical studies. Not the type of clinical trials that change hearts and minds of doctors, patients, and key stakeholders. And so that was kind of the inspiration for me uh, to say, okay, great. This is what I want to do with my career, this new paradigm shifting technology. And I want to become an academic gastroenterologist. My mentor was an academic gastroenterologist. My mentor's mentor was an academic gastroenterologist. I was almost being kind of bred to be an academic GI doctor to be able to do the CIHR and NIH type grants to kind of further just feel in an academic context. And that was my lens. But, uh, and so I was really lucky. I got a, I got a Frank Knox Memorial uh, Fellowship. Uh, so full, full scholarship down to Harvard to do my master's of public health in um, quantitative methods. So basically half biostatistics, half um, epidemiology, but really just to focus on clinical trials. Um, and so, you know, when I was in Boston, um, uh, I was uh, serendipity struck, I guess you can say. <laughs> Um, a group at MIT cited my work and I'm like, MIT, they like invent the internet and train monkeys to control robots. Like, what are they doing with microbes? Um, and so I pinged the PI, uh, Eric Alm, who was in the department of biological engineering and said, thanks for the citation. Um, really appreciate it. Really surprised you're working with microbes. Um, would love to kind of talk shop and, uh, ended up connecting with, with Eric, um, and super hit it off. And he's like, what are you doing next year? Well, like, I'm going back to Canada, be an academic gastroenterologist. Like, well, don't go yet. Uh, I'm like, okay, well, he's like, yeah, you understand GI, you understand clinical trials, you know, a little bit about the microbiome, but let me teach you more. Come do a postdoc with me, a postdoc in, uh, at MIT in biological engineering and microbiome engineering. And I said, that's really interesting, but I'm an MD. I don't think I could do a postdoc. Uh, he's like, no, no, we'll figure it out. It's a thing. We can make it happen. You have a doctorate. And so uh, he didn't take no for an answer. Uh, and I said, well, I said, you know, Eric, we got to sweeten the pot. You know, I, I'd love to do something else uh, on top of that. I said, we'll meet my grad student, Mark, uh, as in Mark Smith. Uh, and Mark at the time was starting a, 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 a company up called Open Biome. And can kind of think of it not like the Red Cross, but the Brown Cross, right? He wasn't doing a, a stool, uh, a blood bank. He was doing a stool bank. And I thought that was a brilliant idea. I said, this is incredible. You know, we, it reminded me of... Um, Back in, uh, uh, back in McMaster, when it was really difficult to find donors to screen them and go through that. I'm like, brilliant idea. Who's doing your medical oversight? And he kind of points at me and says, you are. Join as a co-founding chief medical officer. And so I 
that started my journey uh, into to Open Biome, which I could talk a little bit more about. I, I do want to talk about Open Biome because it's a big, I guess, um, portion of your journey that would be a mistake to miss. But I guess there are some questions there overall in terms of the, the early stage of your development or your supposed development at that stage into an academic gastroenterologist. You talk a lot about optionality, but being an academic gastro mm -hmm. gastroenterologist that focuses on microbiome is the opposite of having optionality. You're niching in real hard. So why did you focus on that approach at that time? And has it helped you expand your optionality since? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I think that, um, the microbiome at that time was a nascent field. There, there really, it was kind of white snow. And so there was a lot of optionality intrinsically built into that. But my first thought was not actually to be, you know, just a general, general in the microbiome. I did a translational microbiome elective at the University of Calgary, um, with Paul Beck and Subrata Ghosh and Gil Kaplan and a bunch of other mentors. And the advice they gave me is my, my vision was to do inflammatory bowel disease microbiome, like a very clear vertical. And, uh, and Paul Beck actually kind of pulled me aside, like, you know, you're thinking about this the, really the right way. The microbiome is definitely really exciting, but go broader, just go, go, go much more horizontally instead of so vertically and locking yourself into a, you know, a, a very narrow field. And, and I think he gave me optionality at that level from a therapeutic perspective. Um, he also talked to me a lot and, and also with some of my other mentors, um, like Richard Hunt and, and, and Paul Rietti about using academic medicine as a platform to do other things. So for example, Paul Beck has a company that he's, you know, involved with, there's been a bridge towards, uh, being able to spin out their technology, which I think is the right thing. Um, and so, uh, and Richard Hunt had, had, had companies he worked with very closely, worked closely with a pharmaceutical group that also had his own company. And I think these are the types of, um, opportunities that I hadn't fully appreciated. I think when I was thinking about research, you know, as a high school student at the bench, um, that there, that does give you optionality. Uh, you can be an academic, uh, and work with true innovation at the bed. Um, some don't want to, and some want to keep that very clear and different. But my time at MIT also changed that. It was almost like an expectation that you would start a company. The KPIs, the key performance indicators were, you know, generating IP and spinning out companies. And the, the groups that were really looked up to were not the ones that had the longest publication history, although that was great. It was the ones that had the most impact on company formation. Um, and so folks like Bob Langer, who started so many companies, I can't even name them. That's totally changed the world in drug delivery technology. It's kind of the epitome of you know, an MIT tenured professor whose impact, of course, is in research and of course at the, at the, you know, publication, but that's just, that you're not done your journey yet. That's just step one of the journey. You need to see that technology through and need to get off to people that are able to take that to the patient, um, or the population. And so that kind of frame shift was really, really valuable to me to understand optionality. Um, and I, I don't think I had that when I was, you know, at the beginning of my journey, and I think I picked that up kind of as I was the final, you know, final chapters in Canada and then, and then in the U S where, um, I think the, the frame around, um, the venture creation, um, and, and entrepreneurship is, is a little bit different. So one underfold this tangent, because it's, it, that there's this one point here that you keep bringing up companies, companies, companies that help generate or transform, uh, research into actual innovation that helps people. Why must innovation, um, or why, like, why has your experience of innovation come in the form of companies? Why is it so difficult to create cures, to create therapies just from a pure academic 
like environment. Yeah, no, I think I think that um, just like in medicine, we have we have specialties, right? You wouldn't expect an obstetrician to do your colonoscopy. You probably wouldn't expect your gastroenterologist to deliver your baby. And it just takes a very different skill set that you have to create um, to be able to have the maximal impact. I think you can definitely create value in in academia, but it it has limits because you're a, you have a full time job uh, being you typically being a, being a clinician. And so there are other models that you can do in academia that are very successful. And so you can out license technology, right? Uh, is that as you have a discovery or an invention, um, you can partner with the technology transfer offices, academia, uh, to find the right partner on the other end to take that forward. You're still a founder. You can still be part of it, but you're you're not you know crushing eighty to ninety hours a week on moving that technology forward. Um, when you have, you know, a 40 to 50 or 60 hour a week, uh, clinical, clinical duty. So partly it's time, partly is skill. Um, and, and I think, you know, I think there's just this haze around, I'll, I'll talk about the Canadian landscape of, of industry in general, that's being a little bit kind of icky, maybe a little bit. And, and I certainly had some of that when I was at the Harvard school of public health, which is very fo focused on, you know equity, social justice, which are all things that I care deeply about. But there was a transformative talk by uh, Jim Kim. Um, so Jim Kim um, started uh, Partners in Health, uh, one of the most premier organizations in social justice to like, you know, get, you know, basically brought medicines, HIV medicines to Haiti. Um, uh, and he was the, at the time, the, the, the head of the World Bank. Uh, and he came back and he actually kind of gave a lecture speaking about this issue. You know, we have to get out of the ivory tower and find ways to partner with our industry colleagues, our pharmaceutical colleagues, because that's what, that's what they did in, uh, in Haiti. They worked with pharma to, to bring HIV medicines to, 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 to you know, uh, lower socioeconomic status and been impoverished and didn't have access to those therapies. And by putting up walls, that's, there's no way you're going to be able to make, you know, make a transform transformational impact in that way. And that pattern of behavior, there's, I just start to hear that theme more and more that Prime Minister of Norway came and said something very similar. I talked to some very senior level folks, uh, like Dirk Jeebers at you know Johnson and Johnson, uh, you know, Janssen, I guess is their drug development arm, and they all they all had this like similar ethos that the way to see that impact through is to find those partnerships or to build it yourself. And and for me, it, it, you know, that was very important. Those were those three kind of talks and conversations uh, help help me kind of reframe my orientation around companies, industry, um, uh, and bringing new medicines to patients and how best to do that. Thank you for listening to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, please download and rate our episodes on whatever platform you listen on. Also, if you have any feedback on what you just heard, we'd love to hear it wherever you listen to or on our website, howitsmed.com. That way we can create better content that suits you. Till next time. Bye-bye.